Amen. Amen. Let's give it up for the band one more time. So blessed. So blessed in this church with so many amazing musicians. Praise God. My name is Vince Pieri. I'm the kids pastor here at High Point Church. That means that I oversee kids ages zero from birth to fifth grade. We hang out over on that side of the building, and God's doing all sorts of great things over in the kids' ministry right now. And sometimes I also preach for the adults on Sunday mornings, and it's always a privilege and an honor to be here. So thanks in advance for listening. Three quick agenda items before we get into the service. First, substance. I want to be a little touchy-feely right now now on Nick's behalf, because he's not always the most touchy-feely person, as many of you know. But Nick didn't write this book because he was sitting around and he was like, man, I'm trying to lead this church. I got all this stuff going on. I've got a million things going on. I'm just in the mood to write a book. He wrote this book because he loves you and because he wants to see all of us grow and mature in our faith and be used by God for his kingdom. And this book is the product of just years of thinking and meeting with people and counseling people. So when you read it, read it like you're reading it as if it's written by a friend, because it is. And like it's written by your pastor, because it is. And he loves each one of you so much. Even if he hasn't met all of you, that's why he's a pastor, because he loves people and want to see people know God. Amen? Amen. First agenda item. Second agenda item. Me and my wife just went on a mission trip to Zambia, and it was amazing. God did all sorts of great things. And, but one of the interesting things that happened on that trip is that we found out there was a girl from High Point who we had never met before on the trip with us, and we had no idea if she was going to be there. And on this trip, we got to know her a little bit, and sometime during the trip, she was like, I love kids. I love kids' ministry. And I was like, really? Are you doing kids' ministry? And like, I didn't even know about it. And she was like, no. And I was like, well, what age group do you like? And she was like, I love three-year-olds. And I was like, really? All right. <laughs> Not every day that somebody says they love handling a classroom full of three-year-olds. So I was like, you want to do kids ministry? And she was like, yes. And I was like, all right, great. So I tell you that story because I thought maybe there's more people in the church who love kids, who love middle schoolers, who love high schoolers. And you, you think like you have to get some kind of special invitation to join the team. That is not true. We are looking for people always who love Jesus, who love kids, who love students, who love high schoolers and want to see them grow in their faith. Reach out to me. Reach out to our youth director, Luke Zika. We'll get you through the background check and the application process and we'll plug in. We still got room on the team for this fall. Quick plug for that. Third thing, we are in the midst of doing these scripture memory verses. We've got one verse for each sermon that we, our sermon series that we're going through, and so now is the time. And for the last few weeks, we've had some cheater words up on the screen to help you get through it. And today we are doing it with no cheater words. If you don't go to High Point or you haven't been here for a long time when you had no idea we've been doing memory verses together, you obviously get a big free pass. And if you come back, you can jump in on the memory verse that we're starting in the next series. I have this memorized, but I also have it in my hand. <laughs> Just in case, because I got to lead everybody in this room and I don't want to mess it up and uh, throw everybody off. But I practiced it a bunch. I've said it a bunch of times. Well, I said it this morning in the first service well, so we're just going to believe in faith that's going to happen again. Ready? We're all going to say it together. And we do this just because we believe that the Bible, when we memorize it, it hits us differently than if we just read it or if we just listen to it. And it's just a great thing to do there together as a community. So here we go. One, two, three. 
Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So all the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Amen. God, thanks so much for this morning. Thanks for everybody here. God, I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. God, I ask that hearts would be opened, not because of who I am or because of what this church is, God, but because of who you are and the power that you have and the love you have for God's people. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen. All right, so we are starting in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 1. That's the little episode that we're going to look at today. Technically, we're covering like eight or nine chapters of 1 Samuel today, but we're just going to skim over the surface of some of it and then focus on this story in particular. As we've been going through 1 Samuel, first we were looking at Samuel, then we looked at Saul for a while, and now in these last few weeks we've been looking at David. If you've never been to church before, you've probably heard of David because of the story of David and Goliath. It's one of the most famous stories probably in the Western world for sure. And that's actually the story that we looked at last week. We left David last week flying high. He's filled with confidence in who God is. He stands up to this giant like it's no big deal. He says, God's going to deliver his people. And he's shaping up to be a true hero, a true man of God. Now, At the part we're going to look at today, five years have gone by, and David runs out of gas. David, to put it another way, David runs out of power for God's path. David runs out of power for God's path. And he's actually on his way to go kill hundreds of innocent people. The same guy who was gonna, who killed David and Goliath is being used by God in all these amazing ways. Five or six years later, he's going to go kill a bunch of innocent people. And you may ask yourself, how would such a thing happen? Well, this is how it happens. It happens to David for the same reasons that we so often get off the path and find ourselves doing things that we never thought we would do. David finds himself in a struggle with people, in a struggle with himself, and in a struggle with God. And that's the same things that we find ourselves in. Everybody here in this room, you're probably dealing with one of these right now today, or you will in the near future, or you have in your past. It might be a struggle with people that somebody has genuinely wronged you. And there's friction, and there's tension now, and there's anger, and maybe it's below the surface, and neither of you talk about it, but both of you know it's there, or maybe it's way out in the open, and everybody knows that it's there, and you've got a struggle going on between you and somebody else. It might be a struggle with with yourself, that your greatest regret that nobody knows about, you've never been able to forgive yourself for, or maybe your greatest regret that at first no one knew about, and now everybody knows about it, and you've filled with shame and guilt for something that you did a long time ago, and you're struggling with yourself, or it might be a struggle with yourself in the sense of that you keep on doing something that you know you shouldn't be doing, and you keep telling yourself, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it anymore, I've got to stop, I've got to stop, but you just keep on doing it, and you feel so bad about yourself, and you think, I should be better than this, but you're not, and you're stuck in some kind of thing. Or it might be a struggle with God. 
that you've had certain expectations for God, for what he was going to do in your life, for what he was going to do for you, and God is not living up to those expectations. You might not even be sure if you believe in God, but you're still in a struggle with him. Because you think if God's real, he should be doing other stuff than what he's doing right now. This is the situation that David has been through and leads up to the situation where he just completely goes off the path. And this is so often the situation that we also find ourselves in. When you're in one, two, or all three of these things, this is often how we feel. We feel powerless. We feel powerless to fix any of the struggles, we f- but we also just feel powerless to do the daily things of life, to wake up and go to work and work hard and love the people that we're supposed to love and do the things that we want to do. We can't live up to our own expectations. We feel powerless. And if we're Christians, we often feel powerless and we fall off God's path, just like David. We fall into sin that we know we shouldn't be doing. We we start doing things that we thought, man, I thought I was past this. I thought I was done with this. And now I'm doing those same things again. Or we fall off the path in the sense that we know God is leading us into doing some great things for him. He's leading us into doing some ministry. There's a path that he's trying to walk us down where we're stepping out into some new things, maybe leading a small group or discipling somebody or mentoring someone or building a relationship with someone at work and telling them about Jesus or standing beside someone who's struggling, and we know that's the path that God is leading us down, but we start struggling with other people, we start struggling with ourselves. we start struggling with God, and we fall off that path, and we just get focused on ourselves again, and our own lives. We've all been here. As I'm saying this, you're like, yep, I've been there, I've there today, I'll be there in the future. So, what's so great is we can look at a story like this, because David's situation was pretty bad. His struggles were pretty bad, and God delivers him from that situation. We can look at that and see how God can deliver us as well. Here's what's happened in David's life. Here's how these struggles have arisen since the day that he killed Goliath to when we find him about to kill all these innocent people. He gets taken into King Saul's service. Saul says, that guy's the leader. I want him on my team. So he comes into Saul's service. Saul starts sending him on military missions. David becomes very powerful, very successful. And then Saul goes, wait a minute. I think that was a bad idea. And he becomes intimidated, jealous, frustrated. So he starts to try to bring David down. First, he tries to get him to marry one of his daughters because he thinks maybe if I can get him in the family, I can kind of manipulate him or get him to do what I want. When that doesn't work, he just straight up tries to kill him several different ways throws a spear at him, starts to send him on military missions, not hoping that he's going to win, but ones that are so hard that Saul's hoping he's going to lose. And this gets so bad, David tries to stick it out and says, I'm just going to try to be faithful to where God has put me. But eventually David goes, this is too much. And David goes on the run. And now, five or six years later, he's on the run. During this time, while he's on the run, he gets in some struggles with himself. He, to try to protect himself tells a lie to a high priest. And we don't have time to get into this whole story, but he tells a lie to the high priest and he ends up getting the high priest killed. Not only the high priest, but all the priests surrounding that high priest. And he didn't do the killing, but he says when he finds out that all these people got killed, he says, that was my fault. I knew I was risking their lives. I risked their lives to save my own skin and this is my responsibility. And there's another section in there where it says that he's conscience stricken. So he's in this struggle with Saul. Now he's in a struggle with himself. And at the same time, he's in a struggle with God. 
When David was 12 years old, Samuel, the greatest spiritual leader in the land, came to his house, picked him out of all his brothers and said, you, God has a purpose for your life. God has a plan for your life. God wants to do great things through you. And Samuel anoints him, which was an interesting ceremony that we don't do anymore these days, but he pours oil on his head. It was a beautiful thing at the time, and it meant that God had promised that David was going to do great things in the kingdom of God, maybe become king, maybe do some other great thing for God. Now, it's 12 or so years later, and for a while it looked like that anointing was coming to pass, and then it's gone. Now he's on the run. He's in a struggle with Saul. He's in a struggle with himself, and during this time he writes the book of Psalms, which is in the Bible that you're holding in front of you, and it's filled with his struggle with God, going, God, where are you? Why aren't you coming through? Why aren't you fixing these things? So he's on the run. He's in the midst of all this struggle, and he runs out of gas, and he leaves the path of God, and that's the story we're going to look at right now. Here's how it happens. 1 Samuel 25, verse 1, page 416. Open it up, pull it up on your phone. I hear some people turning pages, so I'll wait just a second. Just so you know, I've said this before, but I've got the words on a screen in the back of the room, so I don't have all this memorized, lest you think I am more spiritual than I am. All right, here we go. Here's what happens. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. So this is a guy who anointed David. We don't know how much that affected what, about, what was about to happen, but this was definitely a traumatic thing that David also had to go through. They buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. He's still on the run. He's still fleeing from Saul, and he goes to the desert of Paran. Here's what happens there. A certain man in Moan, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. That's a lot of goats and sheep. That's a lot of goats and sheep now, and that was a lot of goats and sheep at the time. If you ever known anyone that had three thousand goats, you'd be like, "Wow, that guy's probably pretty well off. He's got three thousand goats." Same thing was true at the time. This is a rich guy. This rich guy with all the goats, his name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Any Calebites in here? Okay, good. Don't want to offend you. And actually, this is probably just a, a side note. It's not saying he was surly and mean because he was a Calebite. No offense to any Calebites that might watch this online or anything like that. So David's camped out near Nabal's shepherds. And David, for whatever reason, says, I want to do a service, a good thing for Nabal. And so his men camp around David's shepherds, or uh, Nabal's shepherds. David's men camp around Nabal's shepherds for months, protecting them. It says a little bit later that they're like a wall around them. They keep the sheep and the shepherds safe from robbers, and they don't take anything for themselves. As time goes on, and there's a festive season that's coming up, David sends ten men, and he says, Hey, go talk to Nabal, and say, Hey, Nabal, we've been helping you out all this time. We've been keeping all your sheep and all your shepherds safe. Can you return the favor and give us a little bit of food? Now, David's got like 600 men at the time with him, so this sounds like kind of a big request, but at the time, the value of hospitality was so strong that even if... If David hadn't protected Nabal's sheep, this would have been a normal request in a festive season. But because David has done all 
all of this stuff for Nabal and has been such a service to him, Nabal really should have said to these 10 guys, yes, we'll hook you up. We'll give you some bread. We'll keep you going. So David sends the 10. They go talk to Nabal, and here's what happens. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? Now this is a big insult because David is famous throughout the whole land of Israel. He's a military hero for the entire nation. He killed Goliath, and that was just the beginning. So this would be like if you disrespected, you know, someone in the military, there's like kind of a, you just don't do that. This is kind of that same kind of thing. He says, who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? Then he goes on to say this. It gets even worse. He says, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Meaning David's just some uppity, rebellious, lazy servant who ran away from his master to try to make his situation a little bit better. Which we know was the farthest thing from the truth. That David stayed with Saul after Saul even tried to kill him. To try to be faithful to where God had placed him. And he's running from his master, Saul, not because he's lazy or rebellious or anything like that. But because he's running for his life. So just would have been a big trigger for David. He goes on. Nabal goes on, talking to these ten guys. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? Basically saying, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've done for me. I don't care what your reputation is. I'm doing what's best for me, number one, and nobody else. So the men say, okay. David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word to David. Now here's what Nabal doesn't know, is that the great and good and kind David has been going through some hard times. And he's in the midst of this struggle with himself and guilt, struggle with the people closest to him, his father-in-law, Saul. David actually married one of Saul's daughters, so not only is it his master, but it's also his father-in-law. And he's in a struggle with God, and David is out of gas. He is out of power to stay on God's path. So they come back to David, report every word, and here's what David said to his men. Each of you strap on your sword. That is not something you want to hear if you are in Nabal's camp. That is bad news. So they did. And David strapped on his as well. And we know from what we see a little bit later that this is not an intimidation strategy. David is planning on going and killing not just Nabal, but all of Nabal's men. So this is a bad situation. This is our hero. This is David. This is David who killed Goliath. This is David who becomes the king of Israel, is now bent on killing hundreds of people for an insult. Bad situation. And God says, this is not how the story is going to end. This is not how David's path is going to go. So God intervenes. David looks back on this moment and says, God delivered me, but he used Nabal's wife, Abigail. Interesting, interesting how this all shakes out. Take a look. One of the servants, this is back at Nabal's ranch. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. So this guy, David, is a good guy. And your husband, our master, is about to do him wrong. 
Night and day, this is what the servant is still saying to Abigail. Night and day, David and his men were a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. They protected us. These men protected us. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that nobody can talk to him. So the servant says, Nabal is such a bad dude, no one is going to be able to convince him to come back, circle around, go to David and say, look, I'm sorry, here's some food. So she says, Abigail, you got to do something. you got to fix the situation. So Abigail, by the grace of God, comes up with a plan, springs into action, gathers some food together to bring to David, jumps on her donkey, just like we all do when we got to get somewhere fast, leaps on her donkey, and heads straight towards David. Here's what happens. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. So picture the situation. This is a, this is a heavy situation. This is a dramatic situation because she's walking towards the guy who's about to kill her entire family, her whole group of people, and she's in a ravine. So a rock wall on one side, rock wall on the other side, nowhere to go, and here comes David and 400 guys with their swords strapped on. Bad situation. And then to make it even more dramatic, here's what happens. David had just said, so right before this moment where they read each other, meet each other, David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. So David says, God should punish me if I don't kill all these people. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I leave a single male in this place alive. That's a guy who's heated up. Some of you guys have gotten heated up in here. I can see it in your eyes. We got, you know, guys sometimes get real heated up. David is heated up. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey Bowed down, bowed down before David with her face to the ground. And then here's where God did something. And it doesn't really show us how Abigail came to this place. But somehow, Abigail saw what David couldn't see. Abigail looked at David, and she saw a guy filled with rage, filled with anger, filled with hatred, on his last straw, bent on delivering death to the people that were closest to her. In a struggle with the people closest to him, in a struggle with himself, and in a struggle with God. She looked at him, and she must have seen on his face all of that. But here's what she also saw that David couldn't see is that she saw God was not done with this guy yet. God was not done with him. That the anointing that David had received when he was 12 years old was still legit. That God was going to raise David up. That God's favor was still on his life. That God's grace was covering over all of David's sin. That God had a purpose for David's life. That God had a plan for his life. That he still was going to be king. That he still was going to be used. That he wasn't going to be killed by Saul. And that he was going to overcome in this situation. She looked at him and she saw all of that somehow by the grace of God. So she saw it and then she made a bet. She bet her own life, probably, the lives for sure of all the men in her camp. And she made a bet and she's, because she could say whatever she wanted, right? She has taken the risk. She's standing before him. She can say whatever she wants to try to turn his path 
back onto the path of God. She could say, David, you are a terrible, slimy person, and you've sunk so low, and, and, and you don't deserve anything, and if you do this, God is going to rain down judgment on you and threaten him or cower on the ground and beg for her life. But no, here's what Abigail bet. She, she bet everything that the power for David to walk God's path would come from believing God's promises. That the power for David to get back on the path of God would come from believing God's promises. That when David remembered that he could trust God, that God was good, that God had a plan, that God had a purpose, when David believed God's promises, he would have to get back on God's path. So she put all her eggs in that basket. And here's what she said to him. Verse 28. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God, this is talking to the guy about to kill. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. The dynasty that God has promised you, he is going to make good on that promise. Because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Meaning God has not forgotten all those battles you fought for him. God has not forgotten all the times that you stayed on the path and all the times you tried to be faithful to him. And God is going to make good on the promise that he promised to when you were a little boy, he is going to make good on that. And she goes on. She says, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. And that phrase, your life will be bound in the bundle of the living is not a phrase that we use often today. But for David, he would have known instantly what she was talking about because at the time they would gather sticks together to make fires, gather the firewood together and they'd bundle it up and then people would walk with it. And she's saying, God has a bundle of living people and your life is bound up in that bundle of living people. She's just saying, you're not going to die. She looks at him with all of her own fear, knowing that he's coming to just lay havoc to her whole people. And she says, you know what? I'm afraid, but I know that you're afraid. And I know that for you to get back on God's path, you need to trust the promises of God, and that fear needs to be relieved. So she says, David, you're going to live. You're not going to die. Saul is not going to kill you. And then she says one of the most beautiful lines, I think, in the whole Bible. Here's what she says. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. And instantly, David is transported back to the moment when he was 15, 16, 17 years old, standing up to the giant, totally confident in the promises of God. And he swung the sling, and the stone flew out and hit that giant in the head and killed him, knocked him dead that day. And she uses that same image and says, the stone, the, the lives of your enemies, he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. David, you're going to live. You are not going to die. And your enemies, the people trying to kill you, are going to be defeated. She goes on, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing, he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over all Israel. So she says, all the promises of God, the dynasty, the kingdom, the ruling of Israel, the fact that you're going to survive, when he's fulfilled all those promises, and he's going to, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. Do you see this? She could have said, if you kill all these people, there's no way God's going to make you king. But she's so confident in the promises of God over David's life, and she's so confident that he needs to just see those promises and his heart will be changed, that she says, even if you kill all my people, God's still going to make you king. 
God's still going to make you king. God is still going to be faithful, but you don't want to get to that day where God has given you all of his promises. And then you have to look back on this moment and say, I should not have done this. She's incredibly confident in the grace of God and confident that when David sees the grace of God, he will be put back on God's path. This is how she ends. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. God will bring you success. And when that day comes, remember me. Abigail made a bet that the power for David to walk on his path would come to David in a moment that he, that he would stop in that ravine from believing God's promises. So to summarize what she said, she just said, because God will still come through, this is what you should do. Because God, our God, will still come through in your life, this is what you should do. And she couches all of the moral responsibility for David to continue to walk God's path She bases all of that in the promises of God over his life because God will still come through. This is what you should do. That's what she said to him. Did it work? That's what we got to find out. Some of you might not have heard this story before and you're like, I don't know if that's going to work. He might be like, well, thanks for reminding me of those good things. Now I'm going to go kill everybody and thanks for reassuring me that even if I kill them, I'm still going to be made king. Sounds like a pretty good deal. But no, look what happens. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. And he says, It's otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal, would have been left alive by daybreak. It says, if you had not come to me, if you had not reminded me, if you had not given me confidence again in the goodness of God, I would have turned into a cold-blooded killer. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go in peace. I've heard your words. I've heard your words, and I am back on the path of God and have granted your request. Abigail bet it all that the power for David to walk God's path would come from believing God's promises. So she spoke to him, God will still come through. So this is what you should do. And it completely worked. And David was turned from a potential killer back into a potential king. His heart was redirected in the moment. Self-control returned to him. His mind cleared. And he saw again, this is not the path of God. And I'm going to return to the path of God. So what does this mean for us when we're out of gas? When we are losing the power to walk God's path. When we are deep in a struggle with other people, in a struggle with ourselves, and in a struggle with God. What does that mean for us when we're out of gas? This is what it means. That the power for God's path comes from believing God's promises. The power to walk God's path comes from believing God's promises. The power to walk God's path comes from believing God's promises. The power for me to walk God's path as a kid's pastor, to not fall into so many of the sins that pastors so frequently fall into, to be faithful to the ministry, to be faithful to my wife, to be faithful to whatever God is calling me to do. The power for me to walk God's path comes from me believing the promises of God for my life. It comes from nowhere else. The same thing is true for you. If you want to walk God's path, the power
power for God's path comes from believing God's promises. This may sound new for some of you, because you thought, I just thought I was supposed to be good just because it was good to be good. But for some of you, you might say, yeah, I think I know that. I think that's true, and I've heard that before. But here's the thing. We so quickly push the promises of God to the back of our mind. We push them to the side. We push them out, and we feel, I don't, I honestly have not figured out exactly why we do that. Maybe we feel like we don't, we, we fear disappointment that maybe he won't come through, or we think it feels like weak to trust the promises of God. That's for weak people. That's not for me. Or we think, well, if I, if I rely on them too much, maybe they'll run out of oomph or something like that. But we take the promises of God that he's spoken to all Christians, not a promise that you're going to be king over Israel, but just the basic promises of Christianity, and we push them back to our mind. And then we find ourselves trying to do something. I'm going to show you something that you try to do when you push the promises of God to the back of your mind. And you might not have known that you've done this before, but you've all done this, and I've done this, and we all do this, and this is what we try to do. We try to be good for goodness' sake. We try to be good for goodness' sake. We say, well, I need to be a good person because it's good to be a good person. I need to be loving because it's good to be a loving person. I need to be patient because it's just good to be a patient person. I need to be faithful because it's just good to be a faithful person. I need to be forgiving because it's just good to be a forgiving person, and I'm just trying to be good for goodness' sake. Now, that's not bad, but that is not how God designed us to be motivated. That is not how God designed us to walk the path. He did not say, be good for goodness sake. And in fact, the Apostle Paul a thousand years later said, listen, if God is not going to come through on his promises, let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. There is no point in trying to be good just for goodness sake. Now, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying if you've tried to be a good person your whole life and you've never believed in God that you were doing something wrong all that time. All I'm saying is that is not the way God has designed us to be motivated. God said we're meant to be good because of his grace, because of his promises. That we say, I need to be a loving person because God has promised his great love to me. I need to be a forgiving person because God has promised his forgiveness to me. I need to be a good person because God has promised his great goodness to me. I need to be a gracious person because God has promised that he will be gracious to me. I need to live my life for God because Jesus gave up his life for me. It is all about response to the promises of God. That is where we find the power to walk the path. Amen? That is where we find the power to walk the path, and it's not found anywhere else. That is how God has designed us, because when it's like that, it's all about you and him. It's all about seeing him more and more. It's all about trusting him more and more. It's all about believing him more and more. It's all about your relationship with him, and that's what God wants. He doesn't want us to be automatrons who are just trying to do good things because it's good to do things. He doesn't want us just doing good things for goodness sake. He wants us doing them because he has been so good to us. It is all about relationship with God. If you count on God to come through, to put it another way, if you count on God to come through, you can do what he wants you to do. If you push God to the back of your mind and you say, well, I never think about God, I never think about his promises, I never think about what he's spoken over all Christians' lives, you're not going to be able to do the things that he wants you to do. You might get away with the baseline, just not 
train wrecking your life and, you know, doing some basic things that are things good people do, giving a little bit of money here and there. But if you're going to become the kind of person that throws away their life for Jesus, that gives it all up, that lays their life down, that says any risk, any sacrifice, anything that it takes, anything that God would want me to do, you are not going to be able to become that kind of person until you count on God to come through on the promises that he's spoken over your life. It's just not possible. Just moralism and legalism is not strong enough. It is only the promises of God. So I just want to remind you what God has promised us. This is all stuff that we know, but I want to remind you because it's so good. And this is, this is where it starts. Salvation, the gospel, at the risk of boring some of you who could explain the gospel 10 different ways to 10 different people. I'm going to explain the gospel as simply as I know how, because by the grace of God, we pray that every single week in this room, there are people here that do not know the gospel. That when I say the gospel, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And if you're here today and you're like, I don't know what the gospel is, we're so glad you're here. This is the gospel. This is the core of the Christian faith. Here's what it is. I'm going to explain it the same way we explain to the kids. This is how we all start our lives. Black, guilty, because of the things that we have legitimately done wrong before God. Not things that we have good excuses for, but the things that we know we should have done better, we could have done better. And because God is so perfect and so holy, and we come so far from measuring up, we rightly deserve the wrath of God. God would be completely justified to bring down judgment on all people and that we would all be eternally separated from him in hell. But God loves people. And even though that's what we deserve, he did not want us he did not want that to be what we get. So he shed the blood of his son. 2,000 years ago, on a cross, the blood of Jesus rained down from the cross and it satisfied the punishment that we all deserve. And because Jesus took that punishment on himself, now any human being can come to God and say, God, I ask for forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus, and then we receive forgiveness for all of our sins. Everything you've done wrong, past, present, and future is all forgiven, and we stand before God clean, washed clean, white as snow before him. In that same instant, God gives us eternal life, that we are no longer headed for hell, but we are headed for heaven no matter what, because of the strength of Jesus' blood. We're given eternal life right then. And lastly, we grow by the power of God that he grows us up like greed plants into oaks of righteousness, just like Nick's book says on the front. This is the promise of God for everyone who believes in Jesus. And you say, yeah, 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 I know. I've heard that a million times. I've heard it a million times. It doesn't do a thing for me. Well, listen, do you really believe that? And I'm not saying if you don't believe it, you're not saved. I'm saying you can be saved but not grasp the power behind that promise. Because here's what happens if you believe that promise. This is what Paul says is going to happen at the end of the world. Some of you worry about the future. What's going to happen in our country? What's going to happen with the global warming? What's going to happen with World War III? What's going to happen with all these different things? This is how Paul says the world is going to end. The Lord himself, Jesus, will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul says this is how this thing is going to end. The heaven is going to be ripped open. Time and space are going to be ripped open. Jesus is going to come parading through. There's going to be angels making a ruckus. There's going to be trumpet calls going on. And it's going to be a big hullabaloo. It's going to be a big party. It's going to be a crazy thing. Amen, right? You can clap. It's okay. And then 
the people who have died, who believe in Jesus, are going to go crunch up out of the ground. There's going to be dirt piles just flying up everywhere, and they're going to rise and live again in glorified bodies. This isn't like some hidden thing in Christianity. This is the core of what we believe. This is what we believe. This is what I believe. This is actually going to happen. This sounds so crazy that this is going to happen, but what's going to be even crazier is when it does happen, and you're like, whoa, that actually was going to happen, and now it's happening, and here we go. This is the promises of God, and it goes on. After that, we who are still alive and our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. You ever looked up and thought, man, I wish I could fly. I just wish I could be a bird. I just wish I could be free. That's what's going to happen. We're going to shoot up into the sky by a cannon of grace and be with Jesus, our king, in the clouds. That's what we wrote that song forever be about. That's what it's about. And we're going to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to chill up with him. We're going to chill with him up there for some amount of time. And then we're going to be with him forever. And I don't know if we're going to be in him with the air forever. It seems like there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, so we'll probably come back down at some point. But this is what God has promised his children. Now look what Paul says to do from this. This is something we never do. I never do this. You never do this. And this is, I think, why we lack so much power. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. How often when someone's having a tough time in something difficult, you say, you know what? But remember the clouds? Remember that we're going to get shot up into the sky? Remember that there's going to be all these trumpets and fanfare and Jesus is going to break through time and space and we're going to go be with him forever? Don't you feel a little encouraged from that? You're like, yeah, that's good. I want that. And when you believe it, there's a power that rises up to walk God's path. When you say, this life is a blip. It is here and it's gone. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, we're going to enter glory true glory. That's why we can throw away our lives now. That's why we have no fear of the future. That's why we step into any risk, any opportunity to show someone the love of Jesus because we want as many people flying up into the clouds to meet him as we can get together. That's why we grow. That's the purpose of our lives. It's all based in the promises of God. I can't go as in-depth into all of these, but he's promised salvation. He's promised the gospel to every single person. He's promised sanctification. That's just a big word that means we're going to grow. We're going to change. We're going to become more like Jesus. If you're caught in sin, then you feel like, I'm never going to overcome this. When you say, I'm never going to overcome this, you're not talking about yourself. You're talking against God. Because God has said, no, if you believe in Jesus, you will overcome this. It doesn't matter how long you've been stuck in it. It doesn't matter what's been going on. Because of who I am, you will overcome what you are in. He's promised salvation. He's promised sanctification. He's promised a purpose for all of our lives. Jesus went up on a hill, and all these people were watching him, his disciples, but a whole bunch of random people, too, that hardly knew a thing about them. And he looked at them, and he said, you're the light of the world. Not because they were some spiritual giants, not because they were his 12 guys, but because they were listening to Jesus. And he said, if you're listening to me, you become the light in the world. You have the ability to shine light into the darkest places in the world because you know me, even just a little bit. He's given that purpose to every single person in this room. And lastly, he's promised his presence. You, you want to hear the craziest prayer that you've ever prayed, and all of you in this room have prayed it, including me? Is the prayer... Raise your hand if you prayed this prayer. God, please be with me today. Who's prayed that prayer? Don't be shy. Raise it real high. God, please be with me today. Oh, God, I'm a a lowly, humble Christian. God, please be with me today. Would you just please be with me today? And Jesus, meanwhile, is walking by us like, still here, still here. Look what he says. 
Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's like, did you forget? I'm living inside you. My spirit's living inside you, but I'll stay with you even while you pray this prayer. God, please be with me. And Jesus is like, I'm with you. I'm with you as you pray that. He's with us. You don't have to pray that. You don't have to ask for that. If you've believed in Jesus, he's with you. He's not going anywhere. And he has promised that much. It is in believing these promises that we find the power to walk God's path. The power for God's path comes from believing God's promises. Amen? Amen. This is the source. Don't push it out of your mind. Don't say it's too basic. Don't say that's for kids. Don't say I'm past that. There's no past this. A good friend of mine always says you never graduate from the gospel. Your life change always comes from the gospel. You never graduate from the gospel. It is always the truth of the gospel that gives you the power to walk God's path. Let me put it, let me put it a couple more ways just to see if any of these sink in for some of you. You can't get out of sin until you let the truth in. I have seen this again and again and again. People come, and this has been true in my life, and then by God's grace I've been able to meet with people dealing with different kinds of addictions. And they come and I'm like, do you think God loves you? And they're like, no way. And I'm like, he does right now. And they're like, I don't want to believe it. I'm like, do you believe that God's going to get you through this because you believe in Jesus? And they're like, nope. I'm like, do you believe God has a purpose for your life? And they're like, nope. And I'm like, do you believe his presence is with you right now? And they're like, nope. And I'm like, well, you're never going to get out then. You do not get out of sin until you let the truth in that. That's how the gospel works. All the blessings, all the promises, all the love of God comes while we're still a mess. He pours it out. And that's how you get out of whatever you're in. You can't get out of sin until you let the truth in that he knew you were going to be in this predicament long ago when he sent his son to die on the cross. He's not surprised. He's not overwhelmed. And he provided a way. I've said this a few times lately that sometimes when we sin, we feel like I've racked up like 95 sin points and God's got like 100 forgiveness points. And I'm like right under the bar. You know what I mean? Like I've almost maxed it out. And God says, I am rich in mercy. I am rich in mercy. You cannot max me out. You cannot out-sin my grace. Amen? Another way to put it, you can't be good until you believe God. You cannot be a truly good person until you believe God. Now, some of you might say, look, I'm not a Christian, and I think I'm a good person. And... I'm not saying you're all bad. You know, the, to raise a family and love your spouse and work hard and have a nice 401k and all that stuff, that's all good. And for some of you, it's the grace of God that you've made it to that point. So I'm not trying to rain, you know, any judgment down on that. But the goodness that God is trying to put in us is the goodness that impacts the world around us, that we become the kind of people that impact our neighbors, the goodness that impacts our schools, the goodness that impacts our friends, the goodness that impacts our relatives, the goodness that impacts the people in our small groups, the goodness that impacts the people around us, that we shine the love of Jesus. You can't become that kind of good person until you believe God. You cannot become the kind of person that changes whatever little corner of the world God has given you to oversee until you believe God. You can't be good until you believe God, that he saved you, that he's going to get you through, he's going to grow you up, that he's got purpose for you, and that his presence is always with you. Everybody's heading out. See you later. (laughs) <laughs> you can't believe you can't be good until you believe God. We're almost done. I know you're hanging in there and you're doing a great job. If you count on God to come through, you can do what he wants you to do. The power for God's path comes from believing God's promises. It's basic, it's totally true, and there's nowhere else to go for the power that makes you into the person that God wants you to be. So fill in the blank for yourself. Everybody, if you're taking notes, draw two lines. One at the top, one at the bottom. What is the promise and what is the thing you need the power for? Make it specific to you. Those are four general and 
overarching promises, but there are specific promises within these. Let me just get you started because God has promised acceptance. I have the power for when I feel rejected. That's true for all of us because God has accepted you through and through. You have the power for when you feel rejected by people. When God, because God has promised perfect love for you, I have the power for this season of singleness when I'm just looking for a spouse and one is not coming. Because God has promised heaven's riches, I have the power for times of need. I'm going to be walking on streets of gold so I can handle a little dip in the budget right now. I can handle life on a thin budget because God has promised guidance. I have the power for parenting. Because God said, I will lead you into how I want you to live. I have the power to raise my children as up in the way they should go. Because God has promised his spirit, I have the power for witnessing for Christ. There's a lady in the church I was talking to just this week, and she said, I have been praying that God will bring me someone that I can lead into a relationship with Jesus. And I am so afraid he's going to answer that prayer. I was like, I know what that's like. I've been there. And a lot of you, I think, are there. You're like, yeah, I'd kind of like to be used to do that, but I hope it doesn't actually happen because I would have no idea what to do or what to say, and I wouldn't have the time for it. And it's so overwhelming. There's all sorts of ways to think about that and work around that, and you can get training and classes and talk to people and talk to somebody who's done it. But the big, the most important thing to know is that because God has promised that his Holy Spirit lives in you, you have the power to witness for Christ. If there's a reason you're following Jesus, you've got a reason you can share with somebody else. If there's a reason you're following Jesus, then you've got at least one reason that you can share with somebody else. Because God has promised forgiveness, I have the power to forgive. Because God has forgiven everything I've ever done wrong, past, present, and future. I can, forgive, I can forgive the people who have wronged me in even some of the most terrible, horrific ways. What's it for you? Fill in the blank. Because God has promised what? You have the power for what? Write it down. Think about it this week. Pray for it. Say, God, what do you want me to do? How can I hold on to this? I want to end with one final challenge because some of you are hearing this and you're like, yeah, this is good. This is a good reminder. I'm encouraged. I want to do it. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And some of you are like, ah, oh, I'm a little overwhelmed. And some of you are like, I've heard all this before. I've already been there. So here's a, here's a challenge for, for everybody because this is, I believe, where God is leading High Point Church. And I think this is where a lot of different people are leading in the church and elders and staff. This is where God is leading the church. We all must be Abigail for the Davids God brings our way. We all must be Abigail for the David God gave us, God brings our way. I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. There's, you know, like four pastors on staff, and there's a thousand people who call High Point their church home, who are coming regularly. I know it doesn't seem like that many, because there's like two or three hundred in here right now, but over, like in a month, we'll have a thousand different people coming to High Point, and four or five pastors can't be Abigail to the Davids in the midst there's just too many people. We're, we are way past that point where the pastors can be the pastors for the church. If God is going to continue to change lives, to take Davids and redirect them back onto the path of God, we all need to learn how to be used that way, to bring about life change, to get our hands dirty in people's lives, to do what Nick says, to make people our business. That's for all of us. So I want to share just one quick story where I was an Abigail to a David, and I was so far over my head, and, and uh, I just love this story. It's a true story. When I was a freshman in high school, I was in the youth group worship band. I think I've shared that before. And I, they made me stand in the back with my guitar unplugged because I was so bad at guitar. True story. The, uh, 
the worship leader was a student, a high school guy, and we just loved him because he was on fire for God. When he would lead worship, it was like God's presence would just come in the room and he could do a front flip from flat ground. So it was a lot of cool things rolled into one. <laughs> no trampoline involved, just snap his fingers, do a front flip. Time goes on, he graduates, he goes off to college and he becomes a diver actually for the Philippines national team. He was like a state champion diver becomes, you know, that becomes his career, and then he leaves that and goes to Hollywood, becomes a stuntman. He actually becomes Hollywood's second highest booked stuntman. So everybody in here, if you've seen an action movie, you've seen this guy I'm talking about. So years go by, I'm like early 20s, I'm barely walking with God. I mean, my life is, it's a mess. But I believe in Jesus, and I'm trying to figure it out. And I'm back at that church, and he comes to visit. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm totally starstruck. Like, he's got all the power, and I'm like a lowly Abigail. You know what I mean? Like, I've got no, I'm like nervous to talk to him. So I'm like, hey, dude. And he's hanging out with celebrities, literally hanging out with celebrities. And I'm like, hey, man. And he's like, hey. And I'm like, do you still lead worship? Like, trying to have a conversation starter. I don't know what to say. And he's like, no, I don't really do the Jesus thing anymore. And I'm just... I'm broken up by that because this was a guy that we all had on a pedestal that we all loved and I just felt like I had to say something so I was like can I pray for you and he was like uh sure so I'm you know I put my hand on his shoulder probably crunched up my eyes like that like oh I gotta say something good and I just said the most like random ill thought poorly put together prayer of just random things I think I remember saying something stupid like as big as you get God is big enough for you just, you know, like, I don't know what I was saying. I was just saying random things. Just trying, to, just trying to be faithful in the moment. Just like Abigail going, I don't know what to say, but this is what I think is the best thing I can do. And I finish, and he's like, thanks. And I'm like, oh, shoot, whatever, you know. Just going to go back and cower in my corner. So then a few more years go by, and I end up... Um, at, I don't even remember what it was. I think it was actually a bar in Chicago, and it was a group of people. Some people connected with the same church, and he shows up again. This is like two or three years later, and I'm like, hey, what's up? And I'm like, what's going on? Are, are, you, are you, what's going on spiritually? I was a little stronger in my faith at this point, so I felt like, you know, a little more confident. And um, he's like, I'm back. I'm back in with God. I'm walking with God. I'm living in New York. I'm going to Tim Keller's church. I'm plugged in there. I'm in a small group. And I'm like, What? that's so cool. And then I was like, what happened? And he was like, you prayed for me. You prayed for me. And I was like, what? I think that was a thing. And he was like, yeah, you prayed for me. And God just spoke to me and was like, I want you back. I want you back on my team. And I got back on his team from that moment on. And I was like, what? I had no idea. I, had, I, I was shocked. I mean, completely shocked. Like I had no expectation that that's what he was going to say. Got him on the path with God. I don't tell you that to say, you know, wow, I'm some great person because I was not a great person and I had no idea what I was saying. But I tell you that to say when we open our mouths to speak the promises of God, we have no idea the effect we're having on people. When we tell people the gospel, faith is created. Paul said faith comes from hearing the message, meaning you can be talking to a person with no faith. And when you speak the gospel, faith is created inside them. It rises up inside them when they hear the message. And the people in your small group, when you look around that circle and somebody's going through something hard, 
and you're like, I feel like I have something to say, but I'm, I, they don't want to hear from me. Who am I to say this? They've probably heard this before. Just say it. Just speak it. Just say it right to them. If you see someone in your small group and you're like, they're going through something hard. I can see it on their face, but they're not sharing. You, after the group, pull that person to the side and say, what's going on in your life? It's written on your face. You're going through something hard. Talk to me. And I'm going to preach the promises of God to you. And they probably won't like it, but it'll be good in the long run. When you're like, I want to mentor somebody. And you're like, I don't know how to mentor somebody. You just do it. When there's somebody in your cubicle next to you that you're like, I think that guy might be open. Or I think he might be open to just a friendship. Or that lady might be open to a friendship. And you're like, I don't have the power. You believe the promises of God. You believe the promises of God and all the power you could ever need rises up. I want to invite the band back up here. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for us. And I want to invite you to, if, if there's something going on in your heart, if you're like, I want this. I want to believe this for myself. And I want to be used to bring the promises of God to the people around me. This is not a magical thing, but just, just to hold out your hands like this. This is not in the Bible. But neither is this. This is not in the Bible. Closing your eyes while you pray is not in the Bible. And we still do all those things. So put your hands out, and this is just a posture to say, God, whatever you got for me, I want. Whatever promise you want me to believe, I want. Whatever person you want me to reach out to, I want. Whoever you want me to bring your promises to you, I want to be used. I want to be used for that way. So put your hands out, and then I'm going to pray. God, I thank you for everybody in this room. I thank you for all these people that you love so dearly. You just love them so much, God. You sacrificed your son for them, and if only one of them existed, God, I believe that you would have sent your son just for each person in this room because your love for people is so great and so strong. I thank you that your promises that you've made to people who have given their lives to you are true and strong and powerful and that we can trust you. We can trust you in them. And God, I ask that power would rise in this room. The power would rise in the lives of these people. The power would rise in my life. The power would rise not to do something great that would make us look great, but power to do the things that you want us to do, to go out, to serve, to reach the world for you, Jesus. I ask for your Holy Spirit to fill this room. And for people who are caught in sin, struggling, I ask that the promises that you've given to sinful, broken people would be real in their hearts. Let's stand up. Let's sing together.